Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we are talking about knowing God. How do I know God? Uh, there are different ways that people approach this question, and they will mean different things depending on kind of how you are coming to that question or what angle you are approaching it from. The questions that kind of, or the mindset, I should say, that for a lot of people lead them to start asking that question, how do I know God, um, usually revolve around somebody asking, well, how do I get saved? Or how do I become a Christian? And those, I think, are the most common. If you were to Google knowing God or getting to know God or and things like that, almost every single entry for every single ministry that does come up or has an article written, a sermon, all sorts of stuff, will generally focus on it from that sense of conversion. And there's nothing wrong with that. This type of reasoning comes after reading a couple of verses and really just thinking about them. John 17, 3, for instance, where it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And 1 John five twenty, which says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, in both of these passages, knowing him is linked with eternal life, that is, with salvation. And so you can see why, generally, the first thing that will come up when you talk about knowing God is people will talk about the gospel, how to become a Christian. And even in contrast, you can see in the scriptures, you see judgment and being lost is associated with those who do not know him. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. Unto us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You could also say, uh, for John 17, 25, which says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And so you can see where even the contrast of not knowing God is associated with being lost and being under the judgment and condemnation of God. Now, the sense of knowing God when pertaining to salvation is not something that a believer has to struggle with. The question of assurance of salvation is answered by many other passages. However, a believer, or even a non-believer, can get hung up with this question when they come at it from this type of reasoning. Uh, let me give you an example of it's like a line of reasoning which can lead somebody to really start struggling with this concept of knowing God. Um, usually it would begin with something along the lines of, you know, you're just thinking, well, the Bible says that knowing Him is eternal life. Well, I believe the gospel, but, but don't practice sin. But how do I know that I know Him in this way? What does the Bible mean by know Him? It seems to be different than knowing about Him, but... I think that that's all that I know. I don't know if I can say that I know him that way. I don't feel like I can say that I know him experientially. I just think that I know about him. 
And so you see this type of reasoning, it really comes down to what does the Bible mean by knowing him? There's many different senses of that word, at least in English. And it, it when you really look at the scriptures, it doesn't seem to mean that it's just knowing about him. It seems to be experiential in some way. Uh, for instance, if you turn to Philippians chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 11. And just pay attention to the use of the word know and how it's used a couple times in this passage. Paul says, starting Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and, be, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see in this passage that Paul uses the word know, or know him, and things like that several different times. And you see him contrasting this with whenever he was lost, whenever he was just under the law seeking to establish his own righteousness. And he said that he counted all these things but loss for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, or knowing Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to later say in verse 10 that that I may know him. And so there's several different things that he is emphasizing in this passage. So first and foremost, in verse 8, the Greek word that he uses for know or knowledge of, in verse 8, is gnosis. It contains the notion of comprehension or intellectual grasp of something or the content of what is known. So if you were saying, well, I know this, you know, it's more of just like, oh, I intellectually grasp what you're talking about. Okay, that's the sense of what he's meaning there in verse 8, where he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what you think about that. He is even more than all this stuff that comes from the law of Moses, or trying to establish your own righteousness, and all those things that the world, in the sense of the religious system of the Jews at the time, esteemed to be righteousness. He said, he's like, all of that's just loss, when compared to just intellectually grasping Jesus Christ. And you even think about that. That is how highly he held the concept of even just having an intellectual grasp of Christ and of the gospel. But in verse 10, 
Paul switches to a different Greek word. He uses the Greek word ginosko, and that's the verb form of the former word. It means to know, to come to know, understand, acknowledge, and it kind of goes one step farther than the former word. Uh, One commentary notes saying, in such a connection, knowledge expresses the apprehension of the truth by the whole nature of man. It is not an acquaintance with facts as external, nor an intellectual conviction of their reality, but an appropriation of them, so to speak, as an influencing power into the very being of him who knows them, end quote. And so this latter kind of knowing that Paul talks about, uh, this is whenever he's using it in verse 10, where he says, that I may know him. So he's laboring, and in verse 9 he says he's laboring to count all those other things of self-righteousness to be just, they're just rubbish. They're, you know, they're nothing but dung, uh, King James translates it. And he's laboring to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, right? So that he may know him, right? And so this is where knowledge of Christ has moved from just a knowledge in the sense of facts and data to an appropriation of those facts and application of them that affects your very being. And this is where the idea of, um, you know, religion versus relationship comes from. Though, of course, Christianity is a religion depending on how you arbitrarily define it. And people need to stop playing fast and loose with their words. It really does frustrate me because, of course, Christianity is a religion. It's just within Christianity, we have a tendency today to redefine religion as self-righteousness, which is fine. But just make sure that people are understanding what you mean whenever you're saying these things. And please just be careful when you're just repeating phrases and maxims that are just common today, because most people can't explain the difference between relationship and religion. Because Scripture does say pure religion and undefiled is this, is, is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. So the Bible refers to Christianity as a religion. And it used to talk, be, we used to talk about how if you became a Christian, you, you got religion and things like that in a positive sense. Just because it's a negative word today doesn't mean that we should just allow the world to dictate how we talk about things. And so this word, ginosko, right? Just think about it in the sense of, we'll use the bridge analogy, like I was going to say, where you can study a bridge, right? You can study the engineering, the physics, the materials, and all that kind of stuff that goes into building, and you can know all about the physics of how it holds up, how it does all this, the engineering of how much weight it can take, under what load, and all sorts of things. And you can still never have any experiential knowledge of the bridge. And the contrast to that that is often used is getting up and actually walking across the bridge, reaching down and touching the bridge and those sorts of things. The one has knowledge of the bridge from experience, and the other one has knowledge about the bridge, though never having had experience. There is that sense of what we're talking about here. And it comes in the aspect of appropriating the facts and data of the things about Jesus that we learn about from his word, okay? And we'll circle back to that in a little bit. But this word gnosko is often used to signify the relationship of the believer 
such as in the first two verses we read, John 17, 3 and 1 John 5, 20. And so it is actually this word, gnosko, that is usually signifying salvation, that appropriating of the facts, data, knowledge of things from the Scripture to affect your very being. But there is another word, though, that is used. You can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we will read verses 1 through 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I will read. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, that is, his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these thing, these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So the Greek word for knowledge in this passage, in verses 2, 3, and 8, is epinosis. It takes the meaning one step further and emphasizes a deeper meaning. And this is why the New American Standard Bible uh, renders it true knowledge. It's trying to, the New American Standard is trying to bring out this, that this is experiential full recognition of Christ as opposed to just apprehension of facts and data. And so when you read this passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, the entire context of the passage is experiential. And we need to take a moment to consider some things first before finishing that thought, because it's going to affect how you are going to apply it. So we have to consider some things, because some people, they're, they're looking for the experiential knowledge of Christ, and they might be coming to this to apply it wrongly. So one thing that you need to do is you need to take a step back and you need to do a little self-examination. You need to ask yourself the question, what do I mean by know him? Like whenever I'm sitting around thinking about like, how, how do I know him? And you're asking that question because you want to know him. You need to really sit back and ask yourself, what do you mean? What is it that you're looking for? And we've talked a little about what the Bible is meaning by these terms. But what do you mean? Um, when you ask yourself that question, how do I know him? Or when you're crying out, God, I want to know you more, what are you meaning by no? And to help you think about it, 
consider your spouse. Or if you're not married, one of your parents. So I want you to think about your spouse or one of your parents. Do you know them? Yes. Of course you you would say that you know them. How do you know them? Do you only know about them? Or do you have a relationship? For most people, you would say a relationship. Now, does that mean that you know everything about them already? Of course not, right? Now, let's get back to considering the question of knowing God. Okay, But I want you to hold that in your mind. You're looking for a relationship with God, an experiential relationship with God. You need to know what you mean by knowing Him. If you want a relationship, think about the people you have a relationship with now. Okay. So here's a question. What is your motive for asking? What is your motive for asking, how do I know God? You see, the lost, unbelievers or unsaved, their motivation is clear. They want to know him in the sense of being saved. Or sometimes they just want to know about him in the sense of what it's all, what's this all about. A believer, on the other hand, will many times get bogged down with difficulties, trials, or temptations, and will be led to a different meaning altogether. Many times, a believer will mean something like this. Lord, make me feel different or have an experience to make it easier to obey you. Reveal yourself to me. Manifest yourself to me. Then I believe that I'll be able to obey you. That's really what a lot of believers really mean when they're saying, how do I know God? And that's usually the motive that they have. And this is a very subtle deception that is very, very dangerous because it attacks the very core of the Christian life altogether. Well, what do I mean by that? In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, we read, For in it, it is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So we might say, well, I have faith, but I just want to know him more so that, so that what? To help you do the things that you already know he has commanded you to do, such as putting away pornography, not lying, reading his word, talking to people about the gospel, living a holy life. What, what is it? You have faith, but you just want to know him more so that you can obey him? I really want you to understand something. The nature of the battle in the Christian life, the nature of the battle, is never going to change. You have to struggle and overcome sin. You have to. That's literally the majority of the Christian life in different ways and shapes and forms. The nature of salvation is never going to change. It's by faith. And that really freaks some people out. Because sometimes we hear that and we're like, oh, it's by faith. It's by faith. And the world and some very well-meaning people who don't know any better, they think that means without evidence. And that's not what it means. Faith is trust. It's reliance. Okay? It's that salvation is by faith. Nothing precedes you exercising faith in him. Nothing. 
And also one more thing that does not change. The nature of God is never going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. He is not going to change things just for you. You do not have a special case of difficulty or trials and tribulations or feelings that he is going to just change everything for you. Now, that does not mean that God does not reveal himself to you. That does not mean that God does not draw you, strengthen you, comfort you. None of that. That's not what I'm saying. But you, and this is the thing you have to really understand, the nature of the battle is never going to change. You have to struggle and overcome sin. The nature of salvation is never going to change. It's by faith. Nothing experientially, nothing of the promises of God, nothing precedes you exercising faith in Him. The nature of God is never going to change. He is not going to change things just for you. There is only one thing in the whole of this situation, the Christian life, that needs to change. That's you. You have to change. You have to willfully change. You have to intentionally and consciously do things differently. Now, for most of us, the flesh wants to cry out, and you might say, but that's the problem. I can't. Was God a liar? He says you can. He says that if you're a believer, you have believed the gospel. He has given to you all things pertaining to life and godliness. How? Well, let's look back at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Just pay attention to what we're reading, okay? And then we'll go through a little bit of this point by point, okay? Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, notice past tense, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises." Now pay attention to this part. His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. How is it that you were made partakers of the divine nature? That is, that you can walk as Jesus walked in all righteousness and holiness. His precious and magnificent promises. But that's not what we want to hear. A lot of times when we're coming to the Lord... We want an experience that will make the battle different, easier. We want to feel more in love with him before we obey him. That's putting the cart before the horse. Obey him, and you'll eventually start to feel better if you want to word it that way. I don't like wording it that way. I don't think... And I don't think that most of us really understand what we're meaning in the midst of struggles when we're thinking of feelings. Consider the order of what Paul of what Peter says. Sorry, he says he first says applying all diligence. So the underlying word here has the sense of earnest commitment in discharge of an obligation or experience of a relationship. Right? It starts with you applying all diligence. You believe, otherwise you wouldn't be a believer. Sometimes it's not necessarily that you need more faith. You need to actually just act on the faith that you have. God has given you his objective word. He has given you his precious and magnificent promises. 
this kind of applying all diligence is earnest commitment and discharge of an obligation or experience of a relationship. It's the attitude that says, this is mine to do, and I'm going to do it. And that's talking about your Christian life, obeying God. It has nothing to do with your feelings. He then says, Peter says, in your faith. Believing the promises of God is the springboard for everything that follows in this passage. You are called a believer. It is your part to believe. John chapter 6 makes it very clear. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Peter says, he says, in your faith, supply, or as it is sometimes translated, add, like add to your faith. Right? So it takes diligence and in your faith, which is assumed, otherwise you're not a believer, supply or add all of these things are things that springboard from your faith and are supplied or and added to it as you exercise diligence. It says moral excellence or virtue, King James Version. Knowledge, that's in, this one is in the sense of facts and data. Growing and applying all diligence and faith in the facts and data of the Word of God. Right, Self-control or temperance. Perseverance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And Peter concludes his point, again, we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 8, he concludes his little point with saying, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, okay? I want you to pay attention to that. He says, and are increasing. This is not a light switch. You are going to grow in these things. He says, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And what's, what's one of the things that we all want? We want to be used by the Lord. Well, here he tells you, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge, that's epinosis, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's that experiential knowledge. So if you're worried about bearing fruit because you don't want to be that branch that withers and dies in John 15, here is your answer. And again, I want to emphasize this. Notice that Peter says that these things are increasing also. It's not a light switch. It's a state that you grow in. This is knowing God and seeking to know Him more. And a relationship is something you grow in. It is not a light switch. It's not going to come from some experience of you praying and God doing something and you never struggle with sin or fear and things such as that ever again. Now, God may give you experiences and things that it's going to come after you begin applying yourself to seek Him, to applying all diligence in your faith, adding all these things. Now, here's a couple of passages to think about. Um, just notice the attitude, I guess is the way to word it, the attitude, the state of mind, the spirit, really, about these statements about knowing God, okay? Exodus chapter 33, verse 13. It says, now therefore, I pray you, this is Moses speaking, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So Moses said, let me know your ways that I may know you. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 through 24, this is quoted in the New Testament. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. 
that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. I want you to think about the passage we've talked about um, before in the series on um, how to make the Christian life, quote-unquote, work, right? Where he's talked about pressing towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he, What's another way of wording that? Applying all diligence, right? So he says, so let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. Um, and then also Psalm 9, 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You have to stop seeking an experience that will make obeying him easier. That's not going to work. It's like you're aiming for a conclusion by shooting yourself in the foot. You have to change the one thing that can change that will make obeying him easier. And it really is it's just the heart of the Christian life. It really is. But when you get into these situations, difficulties, trials, and temptations, it's like a fog comes over your brain, and things that you do know, they will just mess you up because you won't be able to remember things. You will just get clouded with your feelings. It ought to be this way. I shouldn't have to do this or that. God, where are you? And all these kind of things. But you have to surrender. You have to yield. And you have to give up to God. When you're dealing with emotional pain, you need to learn to say, Lord, I feel terrible. I'm at the end of my rope, but I'm giving this to you. I'll go through it as long as you need me to. I know that you have a reason for this. I trust you. And you just accept that you have to maybe feel that way for a while and not care about it because you trust the Lord. When you're dealing with situational difficulties and trials, you, you need to learn to be able to say, Lord, I hate this. I don't like what's going on. I don't know what to do, but I know that you are working things out. I trust you. Help me to get through this for your glory. Guide me through this to your desired outcome. And that's hard to do sometimes whenever you want a certain outcome, but you have to be willing to give it to God. God may not want you to get what you want. Is it your life or is it his? You see how a lot of this undercuts the entire point of the Christian life. Um, when you feel alone, like no one cares about you, you have to learn to say, Lord, I feel so alone. No one around me seems to care. But I know that you have said that you love me. And I know that you have said that you are with me to the end of this age. You have to learn to stand on God's word, his precious and magnificent promises regardless of how you feel, regardless of situation, consequences, and circumstances. And you have to learn to give that up to God, casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Most of this deception is, is just temptation. It's just a different type of temptation. That It's almost like most of us, it takes a while for us to even be able to, to understand that it's a temptation. Because it's, it's very, I don't know what the word is, it's, it's abstract, it's very... It's, it really is. It's like a fog comes over you, and you're like, where is my God? Right? I was doing—what did I do wrong? So you go searching for trying to find sin in your life. Can't find any, Lord willing. If you do, repent of it and get it right with God, and then start seeking the Lord again. But it's like if you know that you haven't done anything necessarily 
to separate you and your God, then here's the thing. If you don't feel like it, guess what? Don't assume that you are separated from God. God has stepped back from Hezekiah to see what was in his heart. Read the book of Job. God withdrew his protection from Job and his blessing from Job to test Job. And all the while, God is in heaven bragging about Job whenever Job is on earth going through all these things. So most of this deception is just temptation. Your flesh is weary and tired, and you are tired of being tired. You want to feel better. You want relief. But temptation, in essence, is trying to get you to seek experience or feeling without having to trust God's words. And you really need to learn this lesson. And it's something you're going to be revisiting. If you continue in the Lord for years, you will be revisiting this lesson and learning deeper and deeper what God wants you to learn. God wants you to learn to trust in His character over your feelings. Do you actually trust God or do you just trust what He does for you? He wants you to learn to believe His words over your experience. He wants you to learn that you are called to difficulty, persecution, and suffering. Because guess what? That's where your fellowship with Christ is actually going to be felt. It's not going to be felt in comfort and peace in the sense of the world's way of doing it. But whenever you're pressing towards the mark of the prize of high calling of God in Christ Jesus, it says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That is where you are actually going to have that experiential relationship. God gives greater grace where greater grace is needed. Think about what what we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The fact is, you don't need greater grace or comforting experience if you aren't actually yielding to the difficulties and trials that God is putting you into to change your character. He wants to make you like Christ. That is what believers are predestined to. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, what did Christ do? Christ suffered and died in obedience to God. He was called a man of sorrows, but he had joy above his fellows. Consider uh, John chapter 8, verse 29. The Lord says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And even whenever he's about to be arrested and crucified, he says in John chapter 16, verse 32, he says, Behold, an hour is coming, and it has already come for you to be scattered, talking to his disciples, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. What does he say? And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. Christ sorrowed in his earthly life, and he did experience great pain. Yet he acknowledged that he knew the Father was with him. And we are told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9, um, by the writer of Hebrews, says, In the days of his flesh, talking about Christ and his earthly ministry, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And notice what it goes on to say. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. 
Christ suffered with and cried with loud tears, it says, but he learned obedience and walked the righteous life that the Father wanted. God is trying to work the same lessons in us that we might know him and the power of his resurrection. That's newness of life and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, his death, which was complete obedience to the Father. Remember that it was at the end of Job's suffering and testing that he could say, Job 42.5, whenever he knew the Lord in the sense of knowing about the Lord, and he feared the Lord, and he eschewed the evil, the Lord says, all the way throughout the Lord, brags about um, Job and all these things. And then at the end of the book, when the Lord specifically comes to him, he says, Job says to God, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, knowing about, but now my eye sees you. There's the experiential relationship with God. And he could say that at the end of his ordeal, because he had already said in the midst of it, in Job chapter 23, verse 10 through 12, he said, and this was his attitude towards his trials, he says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And the Lord is dealing the same things with you. You have to learn in the midst of your struggles, your temptations, the things that are driving you to want to know him more. You have to have that same mentality that no matter how you feel, no matter what you're going through, situational, emotional, whatever it is, feeling alone or feeling like no one cares about you, you have to learn to not let that thing that is tempting you, which that's what it is, it's temptation. It's a trial. You have to learn to be able to have the same mindset saying, I know I feel a certain way, I know all these bad things are going on, and I do feel overwhelmed at certain times, I don't know what to do about these things, but one thing I do know, Jesus is Lord. And I'm not going to remove my feet from the paths of his commandments. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. You have to adopt the mentality saying, you know, come hell or high water, you know, literally, I'm not moving. I am determined that I'm going to follow the Lord. I mean, you know, that's producing a new perseverance is what it's doing. The Lord is dealing with you to change you, considering James chapter 5, verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing. Notice this is the outcome, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And so let's remember Paul's admonition to Timothy, where he says, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and of discipline or sound mind, King James. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I always find this verse very interesting. Paul's writing to this young pastor, and he says, Hey, the Lord's not given us a spirit of fear of timid or of timidity. He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind or discipline. And he says, there, and I love his attitude is, hey, come and join me with suffering. He's like, hey, come and join me in suffering. Be a partaker of the sufferings of Christ. And whenever you learn to push yourself 
outside of seeking comfort, that is the comfort of the world, you will find that the comfort that comes from God only comes when you allow the difficulties that come from serving God, from trusting Him implicitly. Regardless of what's going on or how you feel, that really is where a relationship, knowing God in a relational, experiential sense, is actually going to be made manifest in your life. So that's what you need to set your heart to. Set your heart to seeking the Lord. Set your heart saying, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I feel terrible. All this stuff's going on. I just don't know where you are and all this sorts of stuff. Honestly, and what you need to do, double down and just seek him more. Be committed to it. It's a conscious act of your will. Stop worrying about what you feel like. Say, like, I don't know what I don't like. I don't feel like doing this or that. But nevertheless, at thy word, I'll do it. That's actual faith. That is saving faith. That's experiential relationship with God. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.